I think that indignation is not enough. But what I think is that I would like just to offer hope. I want to stay and be a business school professor because I think this is where things happen. So I'm definitively an engaged scholar. Financial crisis, economic crisis, social crisis, climate crisis, and now the health crisis that is threatening to blow our world apart. How do we even attempt to understand such major upheavals? How do we give meaning to our lives and to our actions? How do we engage individually and collectively to rebuild purpose and a more sustainable world? What is our role as individuals? And what is the role of organizations, especially businesses? All these questions resonate in a very particular way in this current context. And for more than 10 years, Rodolphe Durand has placed them at the heart of his mission as a research professor. At the very foundation of this commitment, there is personal awareness, a personal shock in the face of a grave observation. He said, The world is dismembered, disorganized, falling to shreds. Our model of the world no longer seems to coincide with sustainable reality. Rodolphe Durand is Professor of Strategy and Business Policy at HEC Paris and founder of the Society and Organizations Institute. He is our first guest in Season 1 of our podcast, Tomorrow is Our Business, stories of people who choose to have an impact on others' lives. This shock, I think, is, the, is really, uh, for me, the, uh, the financial crisis. So the, the way I describe this, so it's first a personal shock in a sense that it's the realization for me that as a strategy professor, uh, having taught, uh, you know, how as a firm you should invest, uh, divest uh, from businesses, uh, use the um, benefits of the globalization uh, for more than a decade at that time, uh, both in France, in the UK, or in the US, well, I really came to the realization that I was, you know, part and pieces with um, some of the, uh, you know, trends that were leading us collectively as a species <laughs> to um, probably a dire uh, future. So for the ones who don't know, the, the academic life is a bit um, like uh, separated in two parts. One is you, you do research and you publish in the uh, best journals you can. And the other one is you teach. And oftentimes you have this separation or divide between what you research and what you teach. In my case, it was clearly the case. So that was I was teaching, uh, you know, corporate uh, strategy or... And my research has always been a bit different, uh, trying to understand why firms and organizations develop um, an advantage uh, to survive and compete over the other organizations. But from um, a normative, so that means what are the norms and values that make an organization stick around? So I could give you some names that are actually, uh, when, I, when I give the name of, of the following firms, you will see that you will feel some, some, some values and everybody is different. Some may think that positive values or those would be more negative values. So if I say Amazon, uh, you know, uh, if I say uh, Google, if I say Total in France, 
or ExxonMobil in the U.S. So, I mean, so if, when I say this, you see very well that I, I'm uttering certain names of firms that actually are um, attached with some legitimacy, a reputation, of course, but also legitimacy. So I, I'm, I'm studying as an academic all these things, how status uh, matters for firms, how you destroy your reputation, what are the social movements that actually append competitive orders and social orders and make some professions. And so I realized after the, this shock, this personal shock, that I could no longer really teach what I was teaching in the past, that all these norms uh, and uh, legitimacy of the organizations were really the material, cognitive, social, uh, psychological material that people were relating to uh, in order to develop their own identity and their acts uh, as well, uh, you know, um, and I wanted at the same time actually to um, bridge the two things, my practice as a professor, I mean as a teacher, and my, my research activities. And so I created the Society and Organization Center at the time, today's Society and Organization Institute, within my school. Um, and I started uh, writing these books and, um, you know, being more, much more engaged in my um, activities. In 2014, Rodolphe Durand describes this shock in his book, The Orgology of Disorganized Worlds, published by Routledge and in its French version, La Désorganisation du Monde, published by Édition au bord de l'eau. By placing organizations at the center of his analysis, he lays the foundations for a new discipline, orgology. This book starts from uh, kind of, a, I'm not sure it's a revelation, but it's uh, uh, an observation that many of the notions and concepts that we are using to describe the social and economic world seem to be less um, relevant. And this has been the case, I would say, for the last 30 years maybe, but it has been increasing over time. What do I mean by that? For instance, the uh, ideas of um, social classes, the idea of the institutions we know, such as state religion, or um, all the things that really structure uh, our capacity to be someone, to do things, to be acknowledged and recognized by others uh, according to these things that we do and who we are, are changing, are morphing, are disappearing. And so that, therefore, we have to understand maybe uh, this flow of changes using different kinds of concepts and notions. Lots of things aligned in the last uh, 12 years, uh, professionally and personally, actually, in my um, modest life. Uh, I, I mean by that, that um, so with the book and the, this idea, so I crafted the term orgology. So it's almost actually a joke, but the joke is coming to become a bit serious these days. Because when I published a, a former book, which was called The Pirate Organization, so that has been published in French and in English, and uh, in the, the French publisher was asking me, okay, so but is this book about uh, economics? So are you an economist? I said, well, I cannot say that I'm an economist. I, uh, well, I read economics, but I'm not an economist. I've been trained in economist. And so I said, okay, so then if you're not an economist, you, you must be a sociologist, right? 
And so I said, well, I, I was trained in sociology, uh, in decadent sociology, but I cannot really say that I'm a sociologist. But so, and the guy told me, he said, what are you? <laughs> I said, you know what? <laughs> I'm an orgologist. I study why do organizations uh, spawn, you know, uh, grow and disappear uh, based on their institutional environment in which they are, the, com the markets in which they are, the, the support they receive from stakeholders. Uh, so, yeah, I think that there is a science that can, uh, you know, make, uh, understand better why is this happening. So I'm an orgologist. And so I crafted the world. I put it in the, in the book, The Pirate Organization, and here I developed it a bit more fully. I think that there is a science uh, of uh, organizations that is not really gestion in French or management per se. I would say it's a little bit upstream, which is... Uh, Why are humans actually uh, creating these collectives that help them accomplish things that alone they would not be able to? I think we, we walked on the moon in 69. So how do you explain this? I mean, what are the organizations, the human collectives that were able to produce this, for instance? Or uh, we were capable of developing, I mean, collectively, of course, a vaccine for the COVID-19 in less than a year whereas traditionally it's five years on average. So what, what does it say? How is this possible? And you cannot explain this with trends or fashions or the movements of social classes or the domination of some over others. These are interesting descriptive elements, but they are not really explanatory. So I think that you need to have an understanding of what a market is, that the market is not just simply uh, effective allocation across demand and supply, but that there are other actually uh, functioning in place that make this being uh, effective or not, that organizations can be big and, and fail. Some of these pharmaceutical companies were able to find actually uh, vaccines through alliances. Uh, the two examples you may have in, 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 in mind, uh, Moderna and uh, BioNTech and, and Pfizer, are actually alliances, whereas the ones that went by themselves, like Sanofi, did not succeed as well. Maybe they will find something uh, later on, but at a point uh, we are talking today, I mean, they haven't yet. So, yeah, so this is what, what it is. And so it's not management, you know, it's not sociology. It could be partly behavioral economics or organizational economics. And I say, but I think that collectively, if you start putting together the understanding of the you know, uh, creation of markets, uh, uh, you, have, you can have a bit of uh, economic history, you know, and this thing could be called the argology. So, you know, the science of the, why organizations are created and why they disappear. And uh, what does it mean to manage the legitimacy of an organization? How can actually it uh, actually be destroyed very rapidly at certain point in times of history due to certain behaviors? Uh, or can some ex escape actually the the judgment of the society or the regulator uh, through different means, etc. So yeah, so that's what I what I did. And so today, in my teaching, in my uh, in my research, in the management of the institute, this is what I'm trying to bring to the students. As an orgologist, Rodolphe Durand explores organizations in depth. What he uncovers takes on several dimensions and requires different hats as a researcher and an academic in the field of social sciences and knowledge, as a professor in the field of teaching, but also as a citizen in a much broader sense through the study of society with particular attention to the general public. For him, 
Understanding the loss of purpose in the world is a prerequisite to rebuilding it. As he says, recreate the conditions of a world that holds. It is this path toward individual and collective engagement that he wanted to open to all and not limit only to academia or business school students through a free online course, a MOOC with a catchy title calling for action, time to reorganize. All these in line with the rise of the indignant and the search for new forms of social protest. I think that indignation is not enough. Uh, actually, it's nothing, frankly. Well, it's, it's, it's the ferment of something. But you saw that these movements actually did not give birth to much. Why? Because it's not just the indignation or it's not the feelings of people. It's the organization, the organizing of these other things. If you really want this to stick, you need to organize. You, you need just to create the um, different uh, settings, aggregate resources. What is an organization? An organization is a set of uh, resources which have certain properties. And these properties must be and must provide an advantage to this organization. So, I mean... If instead of going to a meeting where I would talk about, uh, you know, my indignation for something, I can simply tweet and retweet from my uh, coach uh, at night. Well, I think that maybe my indignation will be enough. I will have just tweeted, you know, <laughs> and, and that's okay. So, I mean, how can you attract, uh, how can you develop something that will stick, that will be influential in the world? Uh, th- these are the real questions. But how do we have impact? And who should lead the change? Individuals or organizations? The actors of change are organizations. I think that individuals are powerless by themselves. And I think that the beauty of human society is actually to create coordination. And you have many different forms of coordination. So for me, the individual is really weak in and on itself. But through the conjunction of resources put at the disposal of the individuals, they can become very, very powerful to the point that some firms today are even more powerful than some states, to the point that actually some corporations try actually to change the, the law just to have uh, you know, discussions and uh, exchanges with states at the global level, even suing the states as a corporation or these kinds of uh, you know, uh, legal procedures because they are so strong and so powerful. So who is leading the change? Individuals, but individuals uh, by themselves alone, and even crowds, for instance, I think are not potent enough. Uh, but individuals in organizations with well-thought strategies can really, uh, you know, change, append order. Our world is organizational. Organizations are bearers of purpose and solutions, says Rodolphe. If orgology is not yet very clear to you, Listen to these explanations from a video called How to Bake a Broccoli Quiche. Your life is organized by your country, your religion, your relationship status, your mode of transportation, your job, your clubs, your children's school, your political affiliation, your groups, your culture, and in the middle of it, you chose to use your social networks to watch this video today. You navigate from one organization to another, which, as the name implies, organizes your life. With your tacit support, they choose resources and arrange them to finally propose solutions to concrete problems. We all then associate these solutions with meaning. Problem, what happens when this meaning no longer has anything to do with the proposed solutions? When your bank ruins you, when your company disappears, or when Facebook separates you from your friends? The organizations feel the full force of a loss of legitimacy. 
What some believed to be positive turned out to be disastrous and led to the crisis we know. The legitimacy of organizations varies over time at an accelerating rate. We cannot forecast what the world will be like in 50 or 20 years, and can even less imagine our own world in 10 years. What companies will be around us? What jobs? What services? What products? What way of life? In the midst of all this, there are those of us who watch this video. Even if everything went to pieces, we would still be here. The only thing we can be sure of is what makes sense to us. But despite that, it is the organizations of which we are members and to which we are attached that define the meaning of our life. We can reverse that. To do so, we need to have a better understanding of the lifespan of the organizations that bear our ideals. Ideologies no longer exist. Our organizations have become our ideas. You can change the world, and it is for this reason that we appeal. Time to reorganize. The revolutions that will shape the future and those who will lead them with you are all around. So reorganize. Reorganize the world. Organizations to change the world, Odolf tells us. Following this logic and considering the mission and ambition of education, don't institutions of higher education and business schools in particular have a responsibility to train future leaders? How does this responsibility translate into pedagogy? For Rodolf, students must first be encouraged to reflect on the quest for meaning in order to catalyze change. Four years ago, I created a course called Have a Cause Make an Impact. And I think that this was uh, one of the best, uh, actually, uh, experience that I ever had. So the idea was, guys, what is a cause that, you know, moves you? And if you want to really have an impact, so define the impact you like to have in the 12 weeks of the, of the course. I mean, it's short, so you know, don't try to think that you will change everything. But if you could define an impact, which is, you know, making something known or um, uh, writing something that will be delivered to, I don't know, a, a state secretary, whatever, if this is the point, or to a, a CEO, what could it be? And how could you build something and create something? And the idea was that you cannot do it by yourself, that you need to find an, an organization that helps you, second you, uh, make the things you'd like to do uh, come true, and then you measure uh, at the end your, your impact. And so the students actually were incredible. So, I mean, some of the themes that I was suggested and I thought will be taken by the students, such as... Uh, for instance, uh, veganism or vegetarianism were not taken at all, uh, but some other topics came to the board and uh, were like dying at home again, mental health condition of students. So things that were very, uh, very important, very loaded, and that were, you know, dear to them. Also, um, harassment in public transportation, even before the Me Too and stuff like that. Okay, so, um, so lots of. Topics, uh, digital isolation in uh, rural areas. So topics that I, you know, I wouldn't have come up uh, with myself. And so here you could see that some students were just create, creating, uh, thinking about how to organize themselves or referring to existing organi organizations. Uh, could be NGOs, could be firms, could be startups, just to try to create and make an impact. So I think that this is, well, I don't know if it's an example, but it's an illustration of thinking of the organized world and helping people actually reorganize their own attachment, belongingness to a cause uh, and to project themselves a bit differently. And I was uh, very um, touched by some of the messages that we received at the end about, you know, um, this changed my, the way I, 
I thought what I could do. I'm not condemned to go to certain kind of uh, career path that I thought I had to do to satisfy my friends or my parents or whatever. So, yeah, I think um, this is an example. We met one of Rodolphe's students who, after her year in the Master in Sustainability and Social Innovation program at HEC Paris, returned to her home country, Mexico, to apply the principles of the Have a Cause, Make an Impact course. I'm Bettina. I'm from Mexico. I turned 30 this year. I'm an entrepreneur. Before coming to HEC, I started a youth organization here in Mexico aiming to promote sustainable development. I didn't know how to, to exactly mix both things, you know, making business, but also making good. So that's when I was looking in for masters around the world about sustainability in business schools. And I came across HEC and I fell in love with the master. And I went. <laughs> I think there's so many learning experience uh, regarding this course. One of the things I really learned was to have a better target as an audience. And I think being prepared to give the speech or to advocate for a cause uh, with different audiences is really, really important. For example, right now, I'm a climate activist also. <laughs> So I've learned this the hard way, I think so. I was very passionate uh, for the subject at the beginning, and I used to, to throw a lot of numbers to people uh, in between, I, I don't know, maybe politicians or business people or the, uh, the civil society, I don't know. And then I learned that, no, 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 no. You have to address people in their own words, maybe, no? <laughs> how, how do you... How, Will you make them part of your cause? What are the benefits for them? And these kind of things. So I think that really helped me in the course to be better prepared to address different kind of audiences and is the cause good for them, for example. And also another good learning experience was to measure impact. One of the things that, 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 that was one of the things I went to HEC for because I didn't know exactly what was the impact I was making through my organization before HEC. And after HEC, for example, I live by the theory of change. For everything I do, I try to make theories of change because that way I can have a better perspective of what is my impact and how I'm doing it and just like to come back to the things that, that I, I think they were working and they are working you, if you compare to the results and that kind of thing. So it has made me, um, yeah, have a better impact <laughs> and be more focused on, on the things that I want to change. So we're lucky to, to have uh, several, uh, actually, uh, donors um, for the chair, Purposeful Leadership Chair that has been uh, funded thanks to the, the, the first gift of Hubert Jolie, the former chairman and CEO of Best Buy in the US, followed by some other people. And we were able just to create for the full intake of HEC uh, a curriculum wherein they do question the reasons why they are here, what they do with others. It's a compulsory, uh, actually, curriculum um, with four days off campus, four days on campus, and then they have to go to uh, firms and organizations to think and write about a question related to leadership. And so I think that this exercise is uh, also, I would say, an achievement of how to make them be more conscious about first the, ch the chance and the, you know, the responsibilities that they have to be where they are and, well, to envision the future in, in many different ways as actors of the 
possible change or or not. I mean, if they don't want to to, <laughs> to be actors of change, but uh, so that's that's to them. I mean, it's their responsibility. So yeah, thanks to this chair, I think that we have reached um, a very broad ob- objective, which is to to make them think more and experience as well th- these different questions. And so we have 100% of the first year student, 100% of the second year students going through these things, which are related, we call it the purpose and sustainability curriculum. Hubert Joly, HEC Paris alumnus and former chairman and CEO of Best Buy, with whom Rodolf created the HEC Paris Joly Family Purposeful Leadership Chair, was the honored guest speaker of the 2019 graduation ceremony at HEC Paris. Listen to an excerpt from his speech to the students. So class of 2019, today is your day. Like many of us, I was confronted with the question of the meaning of my life and was not satisfied with the quest for more prestige, more recognition, or more money. And so I started to spend time with some fundamental questions. Why do we work? What is the purpose of a company. Is it to make money? As Milton Friedman would argue, should we follow Gordon Gecko in the movie Wall Street when he says, greed is good, greed is right, greed works. Can we, in contrast with what Gordon uh, Gecko was saying, find larger meaning in our work? Can a normal purpose be the core focus of a company or is it the realm of philanthropy or social responsibility? Also, how can I, as a manager, put good, noble ideas in practice concretely? How can we create an environment in which individual members of our organizations can be themselves and blossom personally and professionally? Can we reconcile noble ideas with the demands of Wall Street, including in extreme circumstances such as a turnaround or a crisis? Now, the answers to these questions have become clear to me. Our work must serve a higher purpose and contribute to the common good. And as business leaders, we have an amazing opportunity to do good things around us in the world. And so two questions for, for you and for all of us, as a matter of fact. What is your purpose in life? How can work help you achieve your purpose? I suggest you spend uh, time visiting and revisiting these questions until you get real clarity. Rodolphe's call to give meaning to our actions is also a response to the excesses of a system. The excess of market logic and finance, the exhaustion of resources, abuses in management practices, a push for performance-based culture, the pursuit of personal interests at the detriment of greater good, and the rise in inequalities. Yet, in spite of these excesses, capitalism itself is not necessarily in question. This is what Rodolphe Durand put forth in another remarkable essay, a daring and stimulating book on the evolution of capitalism through the phenomenon of piracy, called The Pirate Organization, Lessons from the Fringes of Capitalism, of Harvard Business Review Press. In this book, he calls for a change from the inside to invent new forms of capitalisms. He claims to be a capitalist, but of a specific kind. He explains. About the question of, about capitalism, I define myself as a capitalist. Uh, I don't believe in centralization of uh, a superior allocation of the different resources that we have, though limited resources, through a centralized 
or hyper-centralized uh, mechanism. I do believe in actually freedom to act, freedom of association. And I think that the evolution of the capitalism will be an evolution of capitalisms in a sense that the globalized world that we had over the last 40 years that made lots of development possible for many regions of the world, let's not forget about that, but also maybe did not uh, redistribute the wealth that was created in, uh, let's say, in a fair way and created some pockets of poverty in <laughs> areas that before thought that poverty were was not for them anymore. Um, so I think that um, uh, there will be new ways of thinking about the legitimacy of what firms are, economic value creation will be. And uh, I want to stay and be a business school professor because I think this is where things happen. I think that it's a perfect hinge to associate serious academic research with influence on practice. Um, so, yeah, so I, I don't know if it's a, um, it's a rebellion. I'm, um, I'm not sure about that. Uh, but what I think is that I would like just to offer hope uh, by saying that, um, you know, the giants of yesterday will not be the giants. I'm talking about firms. I mean, will not be the giants of tomorrow. When you look at the market valuation of so some of the oil firms, uh, today that were necessary for some of the kind of development we choose. We, we, all, we all chose that. But we are changing and the value of their assets is diminishing. Investors would like just to try to see different kinds of orientation for their assets that they want to, to value more. And therefore, there will be new generations of, of firms providing, in this case, energy. Um, so it's, I would say it's a bit up to us. It's also up to us to say, I don't you know, let's align uh, our own intimate desires uh, with where we belong to. If you feel that uh, you are uh, torn apart by your multiple associations with organizations because you are uh, working for, uh, again, uh, a, a very, uh, for, I mean, a for-profit firm that is only looking at the bottom line and just, you know, trying to squeeze you out and... Uh, and you suffer, and um, well, I, I think that you have now more and more people who say, I don't want just to keep doing this, right? And so you can try to organize yourself and, and align and, or resist from the inside. This is what I'm saying in time to organize. I mean, you, you can resist, you can advocate for changes. If it doesn't work, I mean, you can basically deplete the resources of the organization in which you used to work because you're leaving it and you go to uh, somewhere else. So is is both I would say it's both re re rebellion and 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 not I'm not here just to give any you know I would say I'm not judging For Rodolphe the economic and financial crises and scandals of recent years should be interpreted less as the failure of the capitalist model than as the end of an ideology of a belief that of the maximization of profit He advocates for the development of a different type of capitalism which gives firms a mission purpose and social objectives beyond just maximizing shareholder value. For me, I think that the, um, you know, uh, in one century from now, I think that we look 2007 or 8 and 2020 as uh, actually the, um, the, 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 the period, I mean, really the uh, pivoting, you know, uh, decade that 
would have initiated uh, a, a real change. So I think, for me, the shock was 2007, 2008. Uh, but I think that um, at the level of <laughs> of uh, human history, if I could say this, I think that the, 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 it would be a decade. And this decade is actually the dismantling of the dominance of the shareholder value maximization, which is the legal and economic fiction that we have been using in times where we needed it, uh, actually, let's not be too um, too severe with uh, with the judgment. I mean, if we go back post-World War II, Cold War, two models facing each other, I think that the political agenda uh, behind uh, globalization and the Freemanian model was economic efficiency, frankly, and the fight for... Uh, uh, capitalism in a sense of the accumulation engine that makes some returns from production to be reinvested in ways that is more efficient that centralization this is what we was what it was about was essential for the evolution of the future of the <laughs> of the world at that time okay so it took two decades to basically uh, disaggregate the uh, USSR and then for two decades or three decades, I mean, the, the movement has amplified, more countries entered the dance, and the system uh, con- continued to, to, to develop and a bit unravel until this 2008, I would say, point where states had to basically bail out firms that were actually guilty of not having really invested the, the way they should have, and banks that should, uh, did not take all the, the precautionary uh, and prudential uh, decisions that they, they should have. Okay, and and then we had a decade where lots of notions were coming, where these were floating around, you know, sustainable development, stakeholder view. Uh, okay, <laughs> problem is stakeholder theory is not a theory. It's not efficient enough uh, just to help you solve and make decisions, you know. So COVID-99 is the bracketing of this period. So when we say with the post-COVID era, yeah, there will be a post-COVID era. Do you think it will be September 2021? No, come on. I mean, of course not. Uh, would it be uh, September 2030? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it will take a decade. It will take a decade. And you, you can see already, actually, the ferments of this change. And again, if you understand that a firm... I will not speak here about the state because states have their own, uh, of course, uh, responsibilities in this. And I will leave this to political scientists to explain that. But for the part that I'm concerned of, actually, um, firms are resources for which you can have some uses, services that they can provide that provide uh, an advantage over others. That goes back, it's an accumulation engine, to the people who actually invested in the organization, right? Question is, uh, how do you reallocate these means? How do you share uh, this? Does it, does it go back to, uh, uh, to a bit more to employees, for instance? Uh, you know that, for instance, the wages have not grown uh, as much as the productivity of the factors over the last three decades. So there is a problem here. Okay, and so this is, this is exactly the question. And the fiction, the legal and theoretical fiction that has been used with the share model valuation, which was making an association between shareholders owning the shares and owning the firm, and owning the assets of the firms or the resources of the firms, means that managers run the firm to deliver the performance for the shareholders. You have long-term contracts or contracts with all the different other parties. So employees, they have the you know they have their wages and they have the security of the of, of the work. 
suppliers, you can have long-term contracts, and you know the prices more or less and the quantities to which uh, they have to, to deliver, etc. The, the ones that really take the risk, says the theory, are the residual claimants. I mean, the, the, at the end of everything, the, the, the ones that put the money in the beginning, and actually they have risk. So because they have risk, they should be the residual claimants. And if there is big profits, the big profits go back to them because you have paid all the other contracts that are more fixed uh, for the other uh, parties. The problem of this thinking is that it's... So it's a good theory, and again, it was very helpful for decades in the fight, in a sense, against the other model of economic allocations, etc., cetera, uh, which was uh, socialism or communism. But today, with 2008, we realized, and this is now known and shared, that actually shareholders own shares. They don't own the firm. The firm, as a legal entity, as its own interest, social interest, mission object that is independent from the wealth of, not fully independent, but that is independent from the, the wealth of its shareholders. And so the firm as a legal entity owns the assets and the managers should operate the firm in the interests, of course, of the shareholders, but in the interest of the firm as, as well as a legal entity, as a moral legal entity, a society. And so I think that this theoretical distinction is now more and more understood. Uh, and you see that when you start saying this, that means that you can have probably a different kind of capitalism that develops, which gives to the firm its mission and its uh, social and uh, economic objective that, of course, is associated with, with the shareholders, because, again, I don't believe at all, and that's why I'm still a capitalist, but not a shareholder value, value maximization capitalist, uh, that pays back, of course, the, sh the shareholders, but for a given you know, return that has to be thought and decided, but that also can develop uh, different other kinds of objectives and missions in agreement through general assemblies, votes, etc., with what the, uh, the shareholders want. So this is this equilibrium that is now discussed. And again, if I go back to argology or the, the, the two dimensions that I was mentioning before, which is legitimacy of the firm and competitiveness, I think that if you give to the firm other purposes to take a term that is uh, very fashionable these days, than just you know maximization of profit, well, you start building on this legal reality, which is actually shareholders own only the shares, and this is why they have limited responsibility, okay, because they are the responsibility is limited to the shares they own, then, well, the, the firm becomes an engine of maybe advancements of some other objectives and missions that the pure maximization of profit, which can be related to, uh, you know, food, uh, uh, transportation, and many other uh, you know, objectives that you may have for, for a given firm. And this, this is also, I think, what was the spirit of some of the, of the laws that have been voted in different countries. For instance, in France, the Loi Pacte, the Pacte Law, that establishes uh, uh, actually the purpose as something a uh, purpose of a, of, of a firm as something that can be voted uh, in the General Assembly, can be put in the, in the legal statuses of an organization to uh, even creating what they call société à mission, so let's say purpose-based uh, societies uh, that do pursue different kinds of objectives at the same time, still being, of course, capitalists in their spirit. 
To conclude this interview, we asked Rodolphe, what causes him indignation? So this is a very difficult question. Uh, if uh, I have to um, uh, zoom in in one uh, main thing, I would say egoism. I think that it's the non-understanding of the codependencies of uh, everybody's life with the uh, uh, lives of others around us. And so you can take it you know, in a minimal sense, which means maybe your colleagues uh, in, uh, in an organization, your, your clients, but you can go for some people, could go as far as any uh, human uh, life on Earth or any life on Earth, including other species for instance, so I leave it to um, to you guys listening it to to decide where to stop. But for me, it's uh, it's really um, egoism. This podcast was brought to you by HEC Paris Business School. Tune in to all the episodes of Tomorrow Is Our Business on your favorite podcast platforms, or find them on our website hec.edu.